Well, welcome to the Opium Den. I'm Daniel Williams. Well, it's another Thursday night, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight, especially all those who turned on before tuning in. We've got a good show tonight. Um, I think we, I think you'll enjoy it. But as I normally do at the top of our show, I give you a little weather report of what's going on down here in southwest Florida. And again, it sounds like a broken record, but it was a rainy, lightning, and thundering day today. It's not raining right now, but as many of you are aware, our beautiful little chocolate lab, Bahama, doesn't do too well with the storms, and she requires a doggy downer or two. So, as her usual, she is laying inside, here inside the opium den at the at the foot of my desk here in the studio, uh, blissfully unaware of the storms and the night air. So again, tonight we have uh, a pretty good show for you. Um, <clears throat> we are uh, fortunate tonight to have as our special guest live, uh, Tamara Holder. And uh, Tamara is one of Chicago's best-known attorneys and a sought-after an analyst for a legal analyst for uh, TV. She's uh, been on all the major networks and provides uh, very concise and uh, intuitive analysis of criminal law. Uh, Tamara's uh, area of expertise is criminal defense, and uh, she founded Expunge, that's X P U N G E D, expunged.com, which helps anyone who's been arrested, even those not convicted, uh, to get their record expunged. So we'll talk with uh, Tamara about that important work and also get her views on drug policy. Um, I first became aware of Ms. Holder when she appeared on Red Eye, which is a talk show that airs at 3 a.m. and uh, hosted by Greg Gutfeld. Uh, it's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting, smart show, and when uh, Tamara was on, she more than held her own with, with the host, Greg, and his uh, various other guests. Uh, Tamara is a, a very smart woman, and all uh, political correctness aside, a very sexy woman, so that's a, a double threat in today's world. Plus, we've got a very special edition of Cops on Drugs Tonight that is a bit different uh, to say the least. So let's get to it. Uh, we're going to walk over. When I walk over, I don't have to walk anywhere. I'm sitting in my captain's chair. We're going to hit the Skype button and uh, we'll get Tamara on the line and and uh, have a go at it. So uh, hold on and uh, here we go. We're going to give Tamara a call. Press the old Skype button. Ring-ding. Tamara told me she did an hour and a half on the elliptical machine. Hello. Well, hello, Tamara. How are you? Well, I'm doing well. Welcome to the Opium Den. We want to thank you for taking the time to join, join us this evening. Well, thank you for having me. I've listened to some of your other interviews, and they're very intellectual, so I hope I can hang. Oh, my God, and you still decided to appear. Now, that's, that, takes a, <laughs> that takes a lot of gumption, Tamara. So, but thank you, for, uh, thank you for that. 
So I, I told uh, I told our listeners at the top of the show. Um, I told them about, about uh, your career as a defense attorney in Chicago, how you're uh, one of the rising stars, as they say, and you're also a, a sought-after uh, legal analyst on uh, on TV. I mentioned that your area of expertise was uh, criminal defense and also that you founded expunged.com, which helps anyone that's ever been arrested, even those not convicted, uh, get their record expunged. So I wanted to start off uh, the top of the show tonight with you and and have you tell uh, me and our listeners about Expunged and the work you do there. Sure. Well, Expunged is just, uh, it's, it's an effort to really build awareness more than to actually help people clear their records because we have this idea in America that if your case was dismissed, if you were arrested and the judge said go home and you didn't go to prison, that you don't have a record. And people need to understand that once they put their fingerprint on paper at the police station, whether they were released three hours later, three days later, whether they went to court and the judge threw it out, they have a record. And it's important that if you are eligible and if the state where you live allows for expungement or sealing or whatever that state um, law provides for, that you, that you clear it. Um, so that's really my mission is to, is to help build awareness. Well, that's a, that's a very important mission, and I want to make a personal note here. Uh, back when I was in college, I'm kind of an old dude. I went to Ohio State University from 68 to 72. And in the summer of 1971, and then again uh, less than nine months later, I was arrested for, uh, for the possession of drugs while in college. And although both, uh, both cases were eventually uh, dismissed with prejudice, uh, back then it wasn't common knowledge that you could have, uh, <clears throat> you could have your record expunged. And it took me, or it took my lawyer, a little over a year to get back my fingerprints, my FBI file, my Criminal Bureau of Investigation file, and all records that were associated with my, with my two arrests. So it's a very important uh, piece of information for those who live in states where you can uh, get your records cleared to, to actually uh, move forward and do that. Because like you said, once they take your fingerprint, you are in the system and getting out of the system is, is very difficult. So how, how, uh, how did you decide to, to work in that area? What, what, what prompted you to do that? <laughs> well, um, I ran into my own bit of trouble in high school and college, and I think my father's listening, so he probably has his head in his lap now. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to keep the profanity to a minimum. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, well, he knows. Uh, thank God for my dad. Um, but he, uh, you know, I, I was just, a rebellious kid of, in a way, you know, I, I never got involved with drugs that much. You know, I experimented like most kids and, and, and I, I have no problem talking to people about that and being open because, um, it's, it's part of the work that I do. And I think what it was, was when I was arrested, um, several times in high school, the police in the town where I lived were terrible. And one time I was pulled over for drinking and driving, and they pulled me out of the car, and that was a bad experience. And then another time they barged into my house when I was having a party at my house, barged in, and even threatened to arrest my father when he came home. I bet that went over well. (laughs) Well, he was upset, you know. He he was like, what are you doing in my house? 
and uh, and I just saw this abuse of power at such a young age. And even my father, who's an educated man, was powerless against these uh, these officers. So I think that was kind of the moment where the light bulb turned on, and I said, I want to do something about this. Um, and you know, I'm I'm a white girl who saw a very minor amount of police harassment compared to what people, especially in the black and uh, Mexican neighborhoods, see every day. They see this kind of abuse every single day. And so that's part of my mission is to fight it. Well, I think it's a very uh, very worthy mission, very honorable mission, and uh, we, we thank you for, uh, for doing that work. And that's kind of a good segue into one of the subjects that I wanted to discuss with you this evening. Um, <clears throat> the Patriot Act was in the news uh, again today. And I'm, I'm sure you're, you're pretty well up on the Patriot Act. But uh, in Congress today, Senator Russ Feingold, a Democrat from Wisconsin, I believe, he was the lone vote against the Patriot Act back when it passed. He was quizzing Assistant Attorney General David Chris on the 763 sneak and peek, as they're called, sneak and peek operations conducted uh, by the Department of Justice in 2008. Uh, Senator Feingold wondered aloud why only three of those 763 were terrorist case, and he also wondered why 65% of them, or about 495, uh, were drug cases. So it seems that there is a, a significant abuse of that, of that uh, sneak and peek um, application, and I wanted to, uh, to get your thoughts on, on the Patriot Act and how it's being abused, if you think it is. Well... What is being abused is the word terrorism and terrorists. And whenever our politicians use that word, they get a lot of support because nobody wants to see another uh, 9-11. But I, I kind of want to explain one of the first things that I did that kind of put me on the map, if you will, um, was there were a bunch of, of guys who were working on the railroad. Uh, in uh, two, three years ago. And I have a, an expungement clinic at Reverend Jesse Jackson's organization. Whatever you think of him, <laughs> we'll say that for another day. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, a group of guys came to me and they presented these letters to me from the railroad that said, you can no longer work on the railroad because you are a convicted felon. We had to run your, your record. And, uh, and, and in the name of Homeland Security, small h, small s, you can no longer work on the railroad because we have to give you a new ID card and, uh, and, and you're a threat to critical infrastructure. So I went to Reverend Jackson. I said, this, something's not right here. And this is this whole Patriot Act thing and terrorism. I said that. And Homeland Security, all of that is under the same umbrella. And really, I didn't know much about it, um, but something didn't seem right. We called John Conyers. We called Benny Thompson. And next thing you know, we had a hearing. And they, uh, the congressmen and women wanted to know why convicted felons who'd been working there for 10, 12, 15 years were now a threat to the railroad system and to critical infrastructure. They were now calling these people who devoted their lives and rehabilitated themselves terrorists because of their criminal background. And that, the reason why I bring that up, it's kind of a tangent, but this is the same thing that's going on with the sneak and peek. 
it is not being used for terrorist reasons. It is being used to go after criminals. The, the um, certification of people to work on our ports and our railroads and, and licensing and all of that, that is not, you know, it, it, it's, it's not being used to prevent would, terrorists from getting ID cards. Would well, you think the Bush White House uh, <clears throat> had in mind all along to use this expanded authority of the Patriot Act to go after uh, drug dealers and drug cases? Do you think that was their mindset uh, in the beginning, or it just uh, evolved into that? No, I, and I'm not a Bush fan, but I think... Well, there's another I- plus. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, I think that I don't think he was he's that smart. He was that smart to to think about that. But I think the unintended effect was what the attorney general um, and the federal prosecutors were now allowed to do. They saw this law. They saw this act. They saw this new power and said, wow, these, you know, these elements of this possible crime of this, you know, Mexican drug dealer in L.A. can now be used to, uh, you know, go into his house without a warrant. And so it was the effect, not not the intent. Well, do you think that, uh, you know, Senator Feingold, after he uh, after he spoke with uh, Assistant Attorney General David Chris, uh, he said that he was going to introduce an amendment to, to curb uh, such abuses of the Patriot Act in the future. Do you uh, do you think there's any uh, any chance that amendment will be uh, voted on and passed? Uh, well, it depends on what happened as a result of those of those sneak and peek warrants. Um, um, you know, did they did they find the bad guy? Did they uh, did were they able to get a conviction out of it? Because if so, the argument is going to be okay. Well, our original intent wasn't for terrorists. But this is a different kind of terrorism. We're now fighting the war on drugs. Well, so, it's, a, it's a well-known fact that, uh, that all the stoners are just uh, hardcore terrorists, and there's probably a good reason to go after them, don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> they're, they're, they're so violent. <laughs> That's right. You know, I, when I, whenever, I, whenever I get high, I want to go out and kill a pan of brownies or, and a quart of cold milk or something. So we are, we are ruthless in our, in our pursuits. So let's move, uh, as, as we're on the, the subject of drugs, and that's uh, what the Opium Den um, is all about, uh, let's, uh, let's get your opinion on uh, drug prohibition um, as a policy. Do you think it's a good policy, bad policy, needs to be scrapped, needs to be enforced great in, in a greater uh, capacity, or what, what are your thoughts on drug prohibition? You know, it's the one thing that I don't really have an opinion on because I see uh, my, my opinions are really on um, the sentencing part of it. And so as far as drug use goes, I do know one thing, that we need to stop incarcerating nonviolent drug offenders, whether they're users or whether they're dealers, because it's, as you know, we're the largest incarcerating country in the world. Per capita, and, yes. And, yeah. Well, one in 100 people in our country are in, in prison or in jail. And so um, as far as legalization goes, um, you know, one of the things I do know is that a lot of the gang black-on-black crime 
is because of um, drug sales. But aren't they basically territorial and distribution disputes more so than, you know, low-level user crime? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have yet to represent any kind of, and even with the territorial uh, um, disputes, I really have yet to represent somebody who killed somebody else over, um, you know, the block. It's, it's more, um, it, it's a bigger problem that they're dealing with, a, a larger gang problem than just small amounts of, of drugs. Well, as a, as a criminal defense attorney, is it right for me to assume that you have defended uh, 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 clients uh, charged with drug, uh, drug offenses? Oh, yes. What's, many, your, many. what's your overall opinion of the, uh, of the client base that you've, uh, that you've represented? Are they good guys, bad guys, a mix? I think that the majority of my clients are good guys, my drug clients. Um, Here's the thing. There's supply and demand out there. And, and unfortunately, people who grow up in bad neighborhoods, yes, we do have President Obama who made it out. And I hear that argument all the time. You can make it out if you want. But when you grow up in an environment where I have worked uh, very, very diligently and, and hands-on in the public housing, and you grow up two miles from Lake Michigan, and you've never seen the lake. Your environment of drugs and prostitution and gangs is all you know. When you go to the Chicago Public Schools and your only meal of the day is that meal that you're going to get at school, and there are no books, and uh, your, your, your peers are um, you know, drug addicted, and your peers are, have behavioral issues, that's all you know. So it's very hard to get out of that environment. If you give somebody a job outside of selling drugs, then they will probably do it. Going back to my railroad guys, the reason why they had those jobs out of prison, they were, they were solicited for their work uh, uh, while they were in prison on work release. Before that, they didn't know that they could get those jobs. It wasn't until they were in the prison that somebody said, hey, we're going to give you a chance to do hard labor, Pay, you know, be part of a union, um, you know, have health insurance, get a paycheck and a salary, and they did it, and they did it well, and they moved up, and they were union members. So most of the people that I see don't really know any different, well, and it's a vicious cycle. <clears throat> as a as a constitutional issue, and you you being a uh, defense attorney, do you believe that uh, citizens have the have the sovereign right over their own body and can? ingest or even expel um, anything that they wish from a constitutional perspective, whether you approve of drug use or not, but what's your, what's your constitutional view? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yes, I think that, I think that uh, we're all responsible for our own, our own beings, our own, our own being, and our own decisions. However, we live in a society. We don't live out in the wilderness by ourselves. So everything that we do to ourselves affects somebody else. And so that's, that's how I see it, whether it's, um, you know, you believe, you believe in sending someone to prison for their use. Well, the, that's, there's an effect on, on your, tax, your taxes. Um, you know, there's effect on, an effect on your family members who see you addicted if, if addiction is your problem.
problem. The majority of the people who are users are not really recreational um, for the hardcore drugs. They well, yeah, for the, for the hardcore drugs, it's, it's pretty hard to be a long-term recreational user of cocaine or methamphetamines or any of the opiates, but in the, uh, the true recreational use is primarily in, uh, in cannabis, whether it be uh, right. marijuana or hash, and then uh, the hallucinogens, whether it be mushrooms or, or the more potent um, LSD. So right. you, look at, you look at the crime statistics and you'll see that um, about, uh, I think in 2007 or 2008, 2007 I think it was, there was about 1.7 million uh, drug arrests in the country and over 800,000 of them, uh, nearly half, were for simple possession, nonviolent possession. So, uh, again, on a constitutional level and just a personal level, so many young people, and most of these uh, arrested are young people, so many of them are being thrown into the criminal justice system for doing something that is, uh, that is fairly innocuous, and they seem to be lumped uh, into the uh, the... The, the larger category of, of drug abusers. Do you, do you believe that, uh, at the minimum, do you believe that uh, uh, marijuana should be decriminalized or at least, uh, or at, at the minimum, or at best uh, be, to be legalized and have a regulated market for it, at least just for, for cannabis? Yes, absolutely. I, I think that it's... it's um, I don't see users and addicts of, of marijuana. Um, the, the people that I see who are in the system um, are either African-American men who are arrested for possession of marijuana because, remember, there's a disparity. So I rarely see a white person in court for a, a, a marijuana offense. Um, and so there's there's really, it, it's, it's so broadly used, um, race, gender, age, everyone uses it. They're growing it uh, in California um, in, the, in the forests. That's a huge problem. If yes, it is. If we legalized it, <clears throat> uh, yes, go ahead. I just think that a lot of the violence that comes from Mexico um, and, and now that's gone into the forests of California and the Wall Street Journal had an article um, a couple of weeks ago, and they had a map of the United States and all of the different locations where these marijuana fields are, are being found in, in the uh, campsites and in the forest preserves. That has brought so much danger to hikers, to um, law enforcement, for no reason. Right, and plus um, it's, it's created uh, considerable uh, environmental damage because these... Uh, these clandestine growers are not uh, the most environmentally sensitive green guys out there. So no. your point that a, a regulated market would, if not uh, mitigate that, it could completely uh, eliminate uh, these, uh, these growing operations, these illegal growing operations. So I want to well, move, move a little bit uh, farther down the road on, on drug prohibition. As I, as I know you're aware that prior to the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914, all of these uh, these drugs were legal, they were pure, and they were readily available. You could buy heroin from the Sears mail-order catalog. You could buy opium and laudanum and cocaine, all these different tinctures and medicines from the local uh, local pharmacy. 
And uh, I, I've, I've researched all of the, uh, the crime blotters and the, and the police records uh, prior to uh, 1914, and I could not find any instance where the words drug and crime uh, were used because when these drugs were uh, readily available, legally obtainable, we had virtually no drug crime. And that's the issue that I feel is, is one of the most important, aside from the sovereignty of our own bodies, which doesn't tend to get you anywhere. One of the most important issues is the, uh, is the amount of crime. There was no crime prior to 1914 related to drugs. And since 1914, as you're you know, obviously very well aware from the work you do, we have a tremendous uh, amount of uh, crime associated with drugs. So even on that basis alone, and I guess adding in the fact that we, we spend about $200 billion a year enforcing drug prohibition, doesn't it make sense that we, you know, we take a look at this and, and come up with a, a more common sense approach to drug policy and regulate the market for all of these substances like it was at one time? You know, I, again, I don't have an opinion on the regulation of the drugs themselves and, and what, what would work. I, don't, I haven't studied enough of that to say yes or no. But what I can say is the reason why drugs are now associated with crime or it is a criminal act to possess or use drugs is because it is such a money maker from the bottom up you have a system where you get arrested for possession of marijuana you have to post bail if you do not go to court it's a misdemeanor offense if you do not go to court you forfeit the bond say it was a hundred bucks okay you forfeit the bond there the state gets to keep it you don't forfeit the bond you fight the case whether you win or lose, they keep 10% in, in a state like Illinois where, um, we, where we don't have um, bail bondsmen who go, you know, there's nothing like that. Even in those situations, somebody's making money. And then we have sentencing where you pay fines to the county, you pay fines to the state, and then from there you go to prison where you, we call it a prison industry, uh, a lot of people that I work with. You know, you go to prison. Um, you work for companies like Victoria's Secret and Apple and Microsoft doing, doing jobs where it's like modern-day slavery, making pennies on the dollar. Your family is, is destitute and wherever, you know, you've left them behind. Um, and they keep you there. And the state gets billions of dollars to have a prison industry. To make a collect phone call, you pay a couple dollars a minute. So that is why drugs are now crime, because the amount of money that you get from it is immeasurable. Right. It's, it's a, it's a money-making endeavor not only for the drug cartels but for the drug warriors as well, and they make very strange bedfellows in their, in their concerted effort uh, to work together. Uh, to keep drug uh, prohibition uh, the law of the land. Now, I know, you're, I know you said you really don't have a stated opinion, but listening uh, to you uh, talk about uh, your views, it tends to make me believe you're uh, form, uh, formulating an opinion that uh, the system needs to be changed, whether or not a legal environment is the way to go. But the system as it stands now is, uh, is unworkable and uh, unsustainable. Am I reading you correctly? 
absolutely. And we need we need prison reform. Uh, I sit on the board of Horizon Prison Ministry. They go in while people are in prison and they help them um, so that when they do get out, they don't their 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 rate of recidivism or their chances to recidivate are less. Um, we we need to stop putting nonviolent drug offenders in the prison, give them rehabilitation. And the other thing is, is that the rules need to be applied across the board, regardless of race. I hang out in this area um, of, the, of the Gold Coast in Chicago. They call it the Viagra Triangle. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, where, all, where, where these really wealthy people hang out and college kids hang out. And the drug trade there is so prevalent and so obvious. You have all of these white cocaine drug users. Everybody knows it. And it's readily available. The police presence is minimal. They're there to maybe make sure that the bums stay away because the Cabrini Green area, which was the largest Section 8 housing in the country, right. was it really backs up to this area. But the, 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 there are no flashing blue camera lights for police surveillance to, to monitor drug use and, and dealing over there. It's right down the street at Cabrini Green. And so if you are going to go after the black drug dealers, go after the white drug dealers. If you're going to go after the black users smoking crack, you should go after the white users snorting coke. And that is the problem that I have that these rules are not fair and they're not applied without racial lines. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, their estimates vary wildly because they're all guesses because we don't have a good handle on it. But my, my, my guess is around 40 million people will get high this year in the United States. And if we're only going to be able to catch, you know, 1.7 million of them, it's kind of like a Russian roulette scenario and it may fall more heavily on uh, on those of, of color as opposed to us uh, Caucasian folks. But uh, it, it just seems ludicrous that we're, we're, we're spending $200 billion a year to catch just a, an insignificant fraction of the number of people uh, who do consume uh, these drugs uh, recreationally. But what, in, your, in your capacity as a, as a criminal defense attorney, one of, my, one of my pet peeves is the amount of corruption inside the police department as it relates to drugs. How, how prevalent do you believe that is, and, and do you have any anecdotal evidence to, uh, to back it up? Well, the corruption within the city of Chicago has been documented for years. You go back to Lieutenant John Burge. I don't know if you're familiar with him. No. but um, and, and it's unfortunate that our country is not more aware of, of this type of abuse. But he tortured. He came back from, uh, from Vietnam and was a lieutenant at the Chicago Police Department in the 70s, 80s, 90s. He's now retired and living in Florida. And he uh, tortured... He's probably my fucking neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) He probably is. I've Uh, got a former cop living next door, and I don't know how in the hell he did it, because where I live, it's not cheap. But anyway, who knows? Go ahead. I'm sorry I didn't interrupt you. No, that's okay. It's probably him. Or his, or his cousin. But uh, <laughs> uh, he, he tortured men into confessions who were on death row. 
And uh, finally, they were pardoned by Governor Ryan and, um, and have since, several of them have received, uh, I think it was a total, four guys received like $20 million in, in settlements from the city. And that's the other part of this. The, 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 the back end the taxpayers also have to pay, or, or not even the back end, but we're, pay, we're paying taxes for prison, um, for, for the prison um, expansion and just for the industry. But then also so many people sue for this police corruption and win or receive settlements for millions of dollars. So we're paying again to people who were wrongly convicted. And Chicago is notorious for corruption. Of course, there are lots of good of good cops, but <laughs> name, name two. <laughs> uh, I can't right now. I'll get back to you on that one. Okay. But I wanted to put. I wanted to make that disclaimer. But um, you know, you have things like uh, and, and and John Burge was from the '80s, but it's a systemic problem. Just last year, we have we had what was called an SOS unit, special operations, and these were these they were these basically Chicago cop gangbangers who could go in and terrorize people and threaten the drug dealers, get their guns, get their drugs. One guy, his name's Jerome Finnegan, was just indicted by the feds for murder for hire, a cop. And they had to disband the whole unit. This is within the Chicago police last year. And then, like I said, you have Burge from the 80s. So you have this systemic problem in one of the largest police departments in the country. Well one, of the, everywhere. well, one of the features, uh, one of the most popular features uh, of the opium den certainly isn't me, but one of the most popular features we have is a segment we call Cops on Drugs. And it's basically we talk about law enforcement officials who have been uh, arrested for, uh, for their nefarious activities in, uh, in the drug trade, whether it's shaking down drug dealers or stealing drugs out of the evidence locker and selling them on the street. And... Uh, it's 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 amazing the number of police officers around the country that are being actually arrested for this, and I believe that it's probably just the tip of the iceberg. But the corruption aspect uh, of of drug prohibition is another uh, is another reason that we should uh, reevaluate and revisit our our drug policy uh, uh, laws. Um, you you mentioned earlier that you're not uh, you weren't a Bush fan. And uh, I don't know whether you're a President Obama fan or not, but we're going to... No, I'm not. Well, good. There's another, another reason I like you. <laughs> um, but as it, re- as, as it relates to drug policy, candidate Obama, uh, and you can see the YouTube videos, he is on, uh, on record as saying that the drug war has been an utter failure and that he was going to uh, do some things for uh, drug policy reform. He also, as candidate Obama, said that he believed that a needle exchange program, a clean needle program for intravenous drug users was a very important step forward because not only uh, would it, uh, well, primarily it would eliminate, not eliminate, but vastly reduce the spread of AIDS and uh, 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 diabetes associated with, with, with dirty needles. So those were the two um, main issues of uh, drug policy reform that candidate Obama uh, campaigned on, and there were a lot of young people who, who believe the the drug laws are very important and need to be changed. But as President Obama, he's really done nothing in the drug policy arena, and there's specific language in legislation that uh, explicitly prohibits 
any federal funds going for needle exchange programs. So I, I'm, I'm very disappointed with uh, President Obama on a number of levels, but since drug policy is my thing, I'm uh, doubly uh, disappointed in his, uh, in his sop that he gave to, uh, to a lot of young people about his changing drug policy. So um, with, with regards to that, my, my friends in, in drug policy reform tell me, they say, Daniel, don't rock the boat. Don't, don't, don't pitch ending drug prohibition. Let's, let's stay with this medical marijuana issue, which I believe is a loser, and I've said so publicly in many of the lectures that I give. But they tell me, they say, listen, uh, President Obama has got a Trojan horse in the guise of Senator Jim Webb from Virginia. And that Trojan horse, they tell me, is the National Criminal Justice Commission Act of 2009. And that's the uh, initiative that uh, Senator Webb has put forward. It hasn't, hasn't been passed or even been debated. But it's designed to take a, a look at the, uh, the criminal justice system overall, but uh, more specifically how it relates to, to drug policy reform. And I'd like to get your thoughts on, one, does another you know, commission make any sense? Is it going to have the same results as the, one, as the commissions that uh, Nixon, Ford, Carter and uh, everybody else had? Or uh, do you think that uh, we're going to see any, uh, any changes as a result of uh, Senator, Webb's, uh, Senator Webb's act? Can you, can you uh, enlighten us on what you think about that particular piece of legislation? Well, I think the, the legislation is fabulous, but this is something that we've seen for years. It, he's, this, these are issues that we've dealt with for so many years on how how do we deal with the criminal justice system and the prison industry and all of these things? But you're right on point about candidate Obama versus President Obama. You know, I've written about it on my blog, and so I'm, I'm happy to talk about that because I studied President candidate Obama's DNC speech, and all he talked about was hardworking, work hard, hardworking uh, – or harder working, you know, working, 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 hardworking, middle class, all of these things. He wants to avoid the race issue. He wants to avoid anything that has to do with the lower class, with the drug uh, abusers, with inmates, any of that stuff he has avoided. Look at the acorn issue. Oh, let's there do, is- let's do uh, prostitutes and, and pimps. I love this shit. <laughs> Well, you know, he was asked by uh, George Stephanopoulos. Um, I'm sorry, David Gregory. He was yeah, asked Gregory by asked David him. Gregory on on uh, on Meet the Press, and he said, um, and I actually wrote about it in my blog about about race, and and in, in the same conversation about Acorn. You know, he he didn't want to touch it. He doesn't know, but he's not going to go there. He's not going to make a, you know make a decision. Well, you think that's because he got? You think that's because he got burned with the Professor Gates uh, comments that he made out of school? No, I think that it's because of his. He does not want to take a position on race. The very same people, the largest uh, coming out and voting of black people in our history was for him, and yet he is not going to take a stand for their issues. And you know how I know that? Because when I go down to Rainbow Push, or when I would, would, was there when, um, when Obama was running for president, everybody had pins and T-shirts with his face all over it. 
What has he done? Tell me one thing that President Obama has done for the needs of those people. And that's Nothing. rhetorical, correct? Yes. <laughs> well, you can answer it. He hasn't done anything. Not one thing. And so the people, you know, and, and, and we're all in this together, but the very same people who wanted him to promote change, as he calls it, haven't seen any of it. And do you, so, do you think if, Jesse Jackson still wants to cut his nuts off? <laughs> I can't speak for him. <laughs> oh, come but, on. Just guess. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's somebody like me who works with somebody like him. I can tell you that when I hear people say, Jesse Jackson needs to go away. He's irrelevant. These issues are no longer, you know, those are civil rights issues of the past. It's not true. Until we have dealt with the public housing issue, until we have dealt with the, the prison issues, until we have dealt with discrimination and disparate impact and all of those things, Jesse Jackson and others have a voice. Whether you, whether you like the person or not, there's a reason why, uh, there are still reasons why he's needed. But don't you don't you think that the Reverend Jackson and uh, the Reverend Sharpton have been marginalized by uh, President Obama? Absolutely. He he intentionally left them out of his campaign because they were too black. And for saying that, I'm sure people are <laughs> the hair on their neck is standing up. Ah, but, this is the internet, hon. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he he intentionally stayed away from them. He intentionally, and that's what Reverend Jackson, I think, meant when he made that comment, um, that, that, that Obama was intentionally staying away from the black issues because then people would say, the majority vote that he needed would say, you know, he's too black. They, they don't want to associate Obama with Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. Because we are in a different era, which we are, but that does not mean that the issues of the past have gone away because we elected a black president. Well, with all the brouhaha over Jeremiah Wright, uh, the reverend who uh, ministered to Barack Obama for over 20 years, you would think that uh, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton would be, uh, would be uh, pudding by comparison. Do you think that uh, the Jeremiah Wright thing uh, has made uh, President Obama more white? No, I, I think that uh, Reverend Wright's, um, whatever it was, show, because he, I think that he was totally out of line. I've never met him, but I, I think that what he did was, was he tried to capitalize on, on President Obama, or o candidate Obama at the time. But what Obama did was a sign of what he was going to do in the future. He is not going to touch those issues. So as we talk about, you know, if you want to talk about Senator Webb's bill and you want to talk about all of these issues and, and the reform, I don't see how it's going to happen. It needs to happen. I'm, I support it. But look at how he's avoided ACORN. Look at how he, um, with, even with Governor Blagojevich, you know, he was the senator that Governor Blagojevich was um, replacing or his seat was what Governor Blagojevich was replacing. He had conversations with Blagojevich, and then and Biden, you know, talked about that. And Axelrod and, and Emmanuel, all of these people within 
his little network acknowledged conversations. And now all of a sudden, he's not touching it. Well, do you think so, that uh, Barack Obama is just another corrupt Chicago politician? Well, I, 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 I don't know. Um, Chicago politics is known for being corrupt. And that's why Blagojevich was indicted, because he didn't play the game right. Mayor Daley and all of his cronies have been accused of corruption. I, I can't say whether they, I don't know of anything for sure. And same with Obama and all of his people. Governor Blagojevich didn't play the game. Had he played the game, he wouldn't be in trouble. He didn't do it the right way. Well, I, I agree with you there that Blagojevich, uh, you know, got caught up in uh, in in the whole uh, political, uh, you know, scam of uh, of Chicago politics by probably not playing playing by the rules. But um, when getting back to uh, candidate Obama in his books, I think uh, the one talking about uh, his father, if I'm not mistaken, President Obama was very candid in his. Uh, in his uh, confession of smoking pot and uh, snorting coke, but in, in the words of his own book, he said, "But, but I didn't do any smack." And it, you know, using that uh, type of terminology to me, it was it was trying to ingratiate himself with his with his uh, with his past and giving him some some street cred. But since that, but since he did those drugs, and you know, he enjoyed them. He enjoyed smoking pot and he enjoyed uh, snorting coke. But had he been had he been arrested uh, back in those in those days, there's absolutely no chance that he would be sitting in the uh, in the Oval Office today. I think that goes almost without question. So to 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 be dismissive of uh, the stoner crowd and the people on the internet, as he's famous for in that one uh, one press conference that he had, to be dismissive of us, uh, what that tells to me, what that tells me is his. His motto, yes, we can, should have a little asterisk, and those fine prints should be uh, as long as you don't get caught. And for President Obama to turn his back on all the, the future Obamas of our country, not, not, uh, notwithstanding all the other uh, Caucasian uh, Obamas of the future, it seems, it seems to be the height of hypocrisy. And that's, you know, that, that bothers me uh, quite a bit, and I'm, I'm wondering if you feel that if you feel the same way or if it's not as important as I think it is. Uh, which, which part of that? that? Well, turning his back on everyone, basically saying, you know, tough shit, don't get caught. I didn't get caught. I made it through. So, you know, sorry about your luck. If you get caught, you know, tough shit, deal with it. Of course, of course. And that's why he is, uh, you know, speaking to, to young kids, this, this whole speech that he gave to, to little kids about you can do whatever you want. Uh, if you work hard, if you go to school, that whole working hard theme that you're going to hear about forever and ever and ever. It's like, as long as you work hard and you don't screw up, like you said, you don't get caught, you'll be fine. But for all of you who've screwed up, all of you who have drug addiction problems, all of you who are the underbelly of society, you know, fat chance. Here's another thing to think about. The president has pardon power. So do our governors. If he really felt about uh, felt strongly about um, rehabilitation and giving people a second chance who were caught, but who have who now contribute to society, who made a mistake, why hasn't he sent a signal to the feds, to prosecutors, and to our people who have convictions by giving pardon? 
Well, that's that's a, that is a very good point. He does have that power as well as the governors of our of our uh, states. And I'm I'm, a, I'm of the opinion that if that if Ford could pardon Nixon, and that's the motherfucker that started the drug war, it would seem to me that we would have similar compassion for the uh, over 20 million uh, Americans who have been uh, arrested and many of them convicted for uh, mostly minor drug offenses for them for the government to uh, step up to the plate and start issuing some pardons. Do you think that's uh, that's reasonable? And if you do, do you think it's actually doable? Pardons are, are an enumerated power for our governors and our president, and it's something that, that they must do, that they shall do. It is something that everybody, or not everybody, but most of our governors and our president are afraid to do. That's why they wait until the end of term, because they're afraid of the political backlash and their constituents' backlash. But um, people make mistakes. And people get caught. And in order for people to fully rehabilitate and enter into society and contribute, they must have a pardon if they can prove that, they, that, that they're a contributing member of society. And here's another problem that now we're facing, we're going to see um, in California. The feds are now stepping up and making arrests to help out California with their gang issues and their gang problems. And... What that means is people who should have been arrested for state crimes are now being arrested for federal crimes, which means that those people will now be in need of a federal pardon from a president instead of a state pardon from a governor, which is more difficult to get. It's not impossible. I'm going to take an. I just got an email from a Tom Tisatis. Do you know him by any chance? Yes, I do, actually. Okay. Uh, uh, he's a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. Uh, he he commented uh, on uh, on your link, and he said, and I don't know what this actually means, but he says, "Mind your own business, Daniel." So, uh, Tom, if you're out there, uh, you know, for a dumb old boy like me, why don't you tell me what business that you'd like me to mind, or maybe you can, uh, maybe you, uh, Tam- uh, Tamara, you can, or Tamara, you can uh, channel Tom on what he means by that. Yeah, I. If he's listening, then uh, is this? I have no idea. Oh, yeah. here, he just <laughs> well, Tom, if you're if you're still with us, if we, if we haven't turned you off uh, <laughs> listening to all this this dribble, uh, send me another email and tell me just what what oh, the what the fuck you know you're what? talking about. I know why because he probably doesn't know that you're the one who's interviewing me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, get in the game, Tom. Me. Part he's defending you. No, you were correcting my post on Facebook that my interview was at 9 Eastern, not 9 Central. So oh. He doesn't know that you're the host. Probably. Well, okay, Tom, we'll, 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 give you, we'll give you a pass on that <laughs> and, <laughs> and, see, and, and, move, and move forward here. So I, I want to I step back and, and discuss the, the, the web initiative again. As I mentioned earlier, we've had these commissions, uh, these Blue Ribbon Commissions, you know, for the past 40 years, and, and many of them are just stall tactics. But generally, uh, beginning with Nixon's commission on, on drugs, it, the, the results or the recommendations were that uh, to either at minimum decriminalize uh, marijuana or outright legalize it. So I would think that we would have the same, uh, if there's any honesty in, in Senator Webb, and I think there's a modicum of that, if there's any honesty to this, that the recommendations from his uh, 
Criminal Justice Commission Act will be very similar. So I'm thinking if, if, if it is true that this is a Trojan horse for uh, President Obama to move in the, in the direction of reforming our drug policy, wouldn't it make sense for, I mean, you know, assuming that those recommendations will be there on marijuana like they've been in the past, wouldn't it make sense for President Obama in anticipation of that uh, recommendation to take marijuana out of Schedule 1 or even better yet to take it out of the Controlled Substances Act altogether and 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 spend no more federal dollars with, in, in pursuit of, of marijuana offenders? Do you think that would make sense? And if, if, you, don't, if you think it makes sense, why do you think President Obama has not taken that, uh, that initiative? It would, be, it would be very, very popular, I believe. You know, I don't know if it would be very, very popular. You have somebody like Senator Feinstein or Feinstein who is asking for billions and billions of dollars more for, uh, to expand the, the prison complexes in California. And so I don't know, while we're talking about um, legalizing marijuana or, or taking it out, I think that, that, that the chances of, um, of taking it out of, of the schedule, you know, a schedule classification um, are strong. Completely removing it is, is risky, and I don't think that Obama's going to go that far, at least not in his first term. Because I I he might only have one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he may at least run again, though. Give him, give him oh, yeah, but I, 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 think, I think Hillary is just salivating. I was watching her sitting behind him today at the U.N., and she was like, you know, what the fuck? I should be sitting there, and you should be, you know, nowhere. So do you, do you think that uh, unless unless his fortunes turn, do you think that there will be a challenge in uh, 2012 with, from, his own, from someone in his own party? Well, yes, absolutely. And, and this is what the interesting thing is to, to watch how this is going to turn because we have health care reform, we have Afghanistan, and we have all of these major issues. And the people who voted him in, the, the young people who um, are drug, you know, the recreational drug, drug users and the, um, the largest amount of uh, minorities who came out and voted for him, those people, if he has not helped them because he hasn't yet, whether it's legalizing drugs, reducing the prison population, um, you know, uh, awareness of, of, of drug use, what, whatever those issues are that people thought he would change, if he has not done something within the next couple of years, which I don't see him doing, those people are not going to vote for him again. You're absolutely right, and I, and I, see, uh, I see a change in mindset already among many young people that, uh, that I talked to and the like that voted for him specifically uh, for his uh, promise to reform uh, drug policy. I don't think anybody who does recreational drugs voted for McCain and Palin. So the constituency is all his, and I think it's his to lose. And uh, if he doesn't do anything in his first term regarding that, there may not be a, a second term. Um, You're right, and... and- with the, with his book and and his, his um, just the way that he tried to get young people involved and to get minorities involved to elect him, that's just that's fine. He got in, but the problem is how does he fix the fix the problem? And so everybody's waiting. Whether it's this new criminal act, whether it's uh, the prison reform, rehabilitation, public housing. All of these issues 
he can't he can't change those issues by just talking about change. Well, I, I read where um, you took uh, you took Bill O'Reilly to task for his comment that if we if we leave Afghanistan, we would uh, we would be doing a bad thing, and you took issue with that. So why why do you believe leaving Afghanistan uh, makes more sense than than staying? Well, first of all, we have the Russians who were run out of there after ten years. Right. Uh, they had no success. We are losing people. The past three months, we've lost more people than uh, more soldiers than the worst month, which was in June of last year. Uh, it's getting it's it's getting worse. I actually just did an interview yesterday with a wife of um, an Afghanistan or a soldier, an American soldier, on the front line in Afghanistan. He's in the north. Um, she said that. She thinks that one of the reasons why there's so much violence in the South is because of the drug trade. Absolutely. Not necessarily any other reasons with terrorism, again, that great word, terrorism, it's the drug trade. And so, um, you know, and then we have Al-Qaeda, but we also have the Taliban. So, you know, O'Reilly's talking about the Taliban wins, the Taliban wins, but we have Al-Qaeda as well and, and Pakistan. Why can't we protect our home at home? Why can't we use our intelligence to protect ourselves? What is our ultimate goal to prevent another 9-11? Well, that, that, that is our ultimate goal, and, and I'm not so sure that, uh, that even uh, that President Bush actually kept us safe. I mean, it's, it's indisputable that we didn't have another attack after September the 11th, but I, I believe it's primarily because Osama bin Laden was was totally shocked that we uh, we came at him with everything we had because previous to that or up to then we've uh, we've responded by uh, by putting our tail between our legs to all of these different attacks that we've had the the coal USS Cole the, the the towers in '93 and that when we did respond with everything we had uh, that was the exact opposite of what Osama bin Laden thought would happen he thought that this would be the the uh, straw that broke the camel's back, and we would leave the Middle East and allow him to get on with his show of uh, of having a uh, caliphate in uh, in the Middle East. So I think Obama, or I think uh, Bin Laden is just biding his time. I don't think that uh, he's incapable of hitting us again. I just believe that if he does, he realizes that the United States will come down. That the, the the population, the electorate, will demand that we uh, rain down. Uh, with everything we have. I think he hasn't attacked us because uh, out of fear and uh, of, of fear of escalation. But, but that's, a, that's another story. But you did hit a very, very important point about the problem in Afghanistan and in, in, the, in the Helmut district in the south with the, with the poppy, uh, poppy cultivation. I believe that if we were to remove prohibitions against drugs across the board, we could, uh, we could design an agricultural-based uh, economy for Afghanistan based upon the, the opium trade. Right now, the pharmaceutical companies get all of their opium from legally from India and Turkey. And in this age of globalization, why can't we allow Afghanistan to play in that market and, and uh, use their opium for legitimate reasons, either for pharmaceutical companies to make, uh, make morphine or for the recreational environment? Uh, do you do you think something like that that there's any kind of credibility or any thread that we can weave with that uh, with that idea? Sure, it's it's 
a great idea um, because, again, if you break it down to the guys on the streets selling it, it's, it's a supply and demand issue. There is a demand out there, whether it's for pharmaceutical sales or pharmaceutical drugs or for uh, recreational use. The demand starts in uh, South America and in Afghanistan, and it goes all the way down to, you know, the, the, the users, the market. And um, if we create some kind of, if, if we allow Afghanistan to play into that market, we will give people jobs there. You know, that's, again, that's all they know. They right, it'll, it'll, eliminate the, it'll eliminate the warlords and the drug lords yeah. who keep these opium, these poppy farmers under their thumb. They pay them shit for that, for their opium. We could, right. pay, we could pay them an, a, a factor of 10 times as much as they're making. Even if we put it in a silo or burned it all, we would be, you know, billions of dollars ahead of the game if we were just to incorporate that product in, in, the, in the legal market. And plus, from my, from my own perspective, uh, smoking opium is a very pleasant experience. Um, sorry about that to your father if he's still listening, but um, it, it is a very pleasant experience, and most people who, uh, who do smoke opium uh, rarely, if ever, get habituated to it, and it's a much milder form of, of, of opiates than neither morphine or heroin. Just like back in, in Prohibition days when alcohol was prohibited, beer and wine almost disappeared from the market because the biggest bang for the buck was hard alcohol. So those who were, who were taking care of their habituation or their addiction via beer or wine had no choice but to move into the hard liquor. And the same thing with Prohibition. And there are many uh, heroin addicts who could, be, who could mitigate their, their problem by uh, smoking opium or taking a, a lower grade of opiate as opposed to heroin. So we're perpetuating the, the heroin trade, obviously, by uh, continuing to, uh, to prohibit drugs. Um, well, the, the interesting thing, and this is a conversation for another day, but when we talk about pharmaceuticals and, and morphine and all of the opiates that are used in, in the pharmaceutical trade, now we're talking about another issue where you have so many addicts in our, especially in our country, where their doctors are legalized drug dealers. Michael Jackson, Anna Nicole Smith, all of these people, and, and we're not, there's so many more besides stars. The average person who is hooked up to morphine and addicted to pain pills, I see them all the time. Uh, I have a very dear friend who's addicted to pain meds. And she's a pharmaceutical sales rep. So you have this other entire legalized drug trade going on in this pharmaceutical world. So everything's twisted. And it just, because it's a pharmaceutical uh, drug, it's legal. But it, you know, the heroin in its purest form and opium and, and marijuana and cocaine, all those things are illegal. It's, it's, and it's because of the, the industry. Well, I think I think there I think the pharmaceutical companies uh, have a vested interest in in maintaining the prohibitions against cannabis. But if they were to really, uh, you know, expand their 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 thinking in a in a regulated marketplace, the pharmaceutical companies would do extremely well in the in the narcotics trade because you can't grow your own cocaine and you can't grow 
uh, your own your own heroin. So if we were to give the pharmaceutical companies the narcotics trade, maybe they would uh, soften their opposition to uh, to legalizing cannabis. Do you think that's uh, just a pipe dream, or am I smoking too much tonight? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I I agree with you, and uh, I think that the large amount of violence that we're getting from uh, from South America and Mexico and Afghanistan, they I would say the majority of it is an anti-American, but it's all related to this this drug trade. Um, tax it, you know, tax it, grow it, uh, lease the land. Sell, sell the drugs, what, whatever your, whatever the idea is, something needs to change because the amount of violence is getting out of control. Well, the, and the, yeah, it, go ahead. I'm that, sorry. No, that, that, that's that's really there's something that now it's just it's it's so prevalent, and now we have the growing of the marijuana and the forests here. It's getting worse, and you have the tunnels. From Nogales, Mexico, exactly. or Nogales, Arizona, into Nogales, Mexico. It's bad. Well, one of the one of the biggest uh, you know biggest fear mongering uh, aspects of the prohibitionists is that they tell us if we were to uh, create a, a regulated market to control the sale and distribution of these drugs, we would turn into a nation of addicts. And I, I'm kind of insulted by that because they they that means they believe that. It is only the the fact that it's illegal that stops ninety eight percent of Americans from running out and shooting heroin or or, or smoking uh, cocaine. And President Obama has stated uh, on numerous occasions that he believes in science over ideology. So in that in that vein, if you look at Portugal, which back in two thousand and one decriminalized uh, decriminalized possession of personal use of all drugs, and they have seen the opposite. Uh, Drug use has gone down. The age at which people start using drugs has gone down, which is very similar to, to what's going on in Amsterdam. And just recently, uh, Felipe Calderon, the president of Mexico, signed a law that uh, essentially did the same thing that Portugal did, decriminalized the possession of personal use drugs. So we have, we have it happening around the, around the world. We have uh, case studies and models to, to look to for changing our own drug policy. But I don't see I don't see President Obama moving in that direction. So his ideology versus science argument. It seems that he's coming down on the side of ideology as opposed to science, and that's and that's why I don't like the prick. <laughs> One, the main reason I don't like the prick. Well, it'll be interesting to see you know two three years from now what he has done, and I I would am holding to my theory and belief that he's not going to do anything. He's not going to take a position on any of this stuff. Any of this stuff that doesn't have to do with uh, middle America health care reform, um, you know, education for the middle American. Um, he's, if it's not that, he's not touching it. It's too dicey. It's too hot. And people are so polarized on the issues. There are people who say, absolutely, yes, we need reform, prison reform, we need um, drug reform. And then you have people who say, absolutely, no. Well, you know? let me, let me uh, close out this evening. I want to I preface it by thanking you for taking the time to join us. It was a, it was a very good discussion. It was very enlightening. We, we, like, uh, we like what you have to say. 
and uh, the fact that you did an hour and a half on the elliptical machine before the uh, before the interview is, is a humbling is a humbling thing for me. But um, I, just just to close out, I want to ask you what uh, what is your opinion on on uh, President Obama's health care initiative? Are you for or against somewhere in the middle? What do you think? I don't have an opinion yet. Oh come on. Um, no, here, here's why. And again, this, this is actually, this goes back to, to my prison issue. You go to prison, you get free health care. You get screening, you get dental, you get, uh, as a woman, you get a free pap smear. All of those things you get for free, which taxpayers are paying for, really. Um, but so, so, and those are generally people who are poor who are in prison. So if we have a public option or if we have, it, 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 as taxpayers, for those people who aren't in prison, because we're paying for it anyway, I don't see the problem. But at the same time, um, I have other issues, problems with it. I, I think that we should be left alone. And for the government to have uh, a government option, that puts them um, more in control of, of Americans. Well, that's a very libertarian and, uh, philosophy. Do you, do you align yourself with more of a libertarian, whether it's a small L or a large L libertarian, more so than a Democrat or Republican? You know what? I am not that smart to go to, to have an, <laughs> a... Uh, oh, get uh, out. <laughs> get serious. the fuck out. You are that smart. I, I don't, You're a politician. I don't know who I align with. I have, and it's interesting because my, my, my feelings have changed on certain things. So I don't know who who I what party I align with. I know that um, I thought I was a Democrat, and then you know I I voted for the wrong guy. Uh, <laughs> so at this point, I'm kind of confused. I guess if that's if that's a party, um, it's too bad Sarah Palin kind of screwed it up. But, what do you think about Sarah Palin? You know, I think that right now she is creating a movement. Um, she has a lot of support. She has a lot of support out there, and people are enamored with her. There's something about her, whether it's star power or something. I wouldn't be surprised if she makes some kind of a comeback. I think that's what she's doing right now. And as Obama starts, you know, continues to piss people off on both sides, it's, she, may, she may be back. Well, I, I don't doubt that she that she has a, a, a tremendous amount of appeal. Uh, I was obviously uh, very much uh, opposed uh, to Sarah Palin, not on the not on the fact that she was a woman or anything of that nature. I just didn't think that she was prepared or had enough of a worldview to to step into the number two position, and especially Senator McCain, as old and sick as he is, I figured within six months he'd have gone face down in his plate of spaghetti, and we would have President Palin. That was the biggest fear, uh, biggest fear that I have. But I do believe that she's she's a lot smarter than people give her credit for. Uh, she's made some, uh, some she's made some rookie mistakes, and I do believe, as you do, that uh, she's going to have a presence uh, moving forward. And uh, it's just a matter of if her support can be more uh, widespread than uh, than than it is now. So. Well, we'll just have to see. But uh, Tamara, I want to I want to thank you again. I'm sure you did your father proud this evening. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us inside the Opium Den, and we'd hope we hope that uh, we can uh, we can do it again. So, if you have any closing comment, I'd like you to uh, give the 
web address for Expunged and the web address for your blog to all of our listeners. Sure. My closing remarks would just be that I think that we need to have some reform in our country with drug, drug reform and prison reform and rehabilitation, more, um, more organizations like Horizon Prison Ministries, people who are there to help rehabilitate people. Um, and and that's, that's it for my closing remarks. My website is expunged.com, spelled X-P-U-N-G-E-D.com. If you can get it, you can always Google me. And my blog is TamaraHolder.Squarespace.com. Well, great. I, I would I would hope that you get some increased traffic there. And again, uh, Tamara, thank you very much for uh, for your candid remarks tonight. And we hope to have you uh, back inside the Opium Den in the near future. Thank you. It was a wonderful conversation, and I'm honored by the invitation. Well, thanks again for showing up because we're drug crazies here. <laughs> <laughs> and I will be back on the red eye. Oh, you um, will. Oh, yeah. that's a great show. I just, I just saw it. I just started watching it about, actually, the first episode that I watched had, uh, had you on there. And that's what uh, piqued my interest to, to get you on the show. So what was it like being on that show? There, you know, there's some smart guys and smart stuff going on there. Uh, what, what was it like? Did you, were you a little overwhelmed? It didn't appear that way. But what, what, was, your, uh, what was your take on the, uh, on the red eye? Well, it was actually my second time on the show. I go to New York once a month, and I spend a week there doing doing TV and stuff like that. Um, I, I really like it. I feel at home on that show because I'm allowed to be a little young and, and sexy and also... Well, that's what you are, though. <laughs> that's just being yourself. I, well, yes, I can be myself and witty, and we can laugh, and they can make jokes. And then also I can try to say something that's, intelligent because they they laugh about politics and current events so it's a great show it really is probably my favorite show to to be a guest on it's just it's fun and it's intelligent it is it is a smart show i I like uh, greg he's a smart guy and uh andy i like his uh halftime and and game wrap-ups it's a it's a it's a good show and it was great to great to see you on there so let let me know when you're going to be on again so uh, the 21st, October 21st. Well, there it is, October 21st. Did they book that far in advance? For me, they do. <laughs> oh, because you're so young and sexy, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tamara, thanks again for coming inside the Opium Den, and we will have you back. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful night. You do the same. Bye now. Bye. Well, there you have it. Uh, Tamara Holder. Uh, joined us inside the Opium Den. I hope you enjoyed uh, uh, listening to uh, to us talk. Uh, Tamara's a, a bright woman, and uh, pleasure pleasure having her on the show. So uh, we ran a little long with Tamara, but uh, if you're still with us and uh, wondering what that uh, special edition of Cops on Drugs tonight is, well, here it is, and uh, it's a doozy. This is out of uh, the Philadelphia Daily News today. And the headline is, Animal Cruelty Charges Dropped Against Burlington County Cop. And the Burlington County Cop in question, his name is Robert Malia Jr. Now, like I said, uh, this is a little bit different. Uh, this, this cop had to be on drugs to do, uh, to do what he is <clears throat> charged with. Apparently, our uh, Robert uh, Malia Jr. 
has an affinity for uh, cow calves, young cows, because uh, he has been charged with, <laughs> I guess I can already say this, he's accused of sticking his penis into the mouths of five calves in rural Southampton, uh, Philadelphia in 2006. Now, the interesting thing about this case, aside from the fact that uh, he was sticking his dick in calves' mouths, is that they don't really know how to charge him. Uh, and they, uh, they say in the article, if animals could talk, a few cows there in Burlington County might ask the state legislators to uh, hurry up and outlaw bestiality. Uh, it was a very bizarre hearing, according to, uh, to Jason Nark from the Philadelphia Daily News, uh, because the Superior uh, Court judge dismissed the animal cruelty charges against uh, Mr. Malia, uh, claiming that a grand jury couldn't infer whether the calves had been tormented or puzzled by the situation or even irritated that they'd been duped out of a meal. And this was what the, the judge's his quote. It says, if the cow had the cognitive ability to form thought and speak, would it say, where's the milk? I'm not getting any milk. <laughs> the cow seemed to be cheated in the... Uh, uh, the judge went on to say that children seem comforted when uh, when given pacifiers, but there's no way to know uh, what a bovine mind thought of uh, Officer Malia substituting his member, as they called it in the article, for uh, for a cow's tit. Uh, the judge went on to say that children enjoy the act of suckling, but uh, cows may be of a different disposition. Uh, the uh, the county prosecutor, Kevin Morgan, he was certainly uh, upset by the ruling, uh, claiming that the grand jury didn't see the videos. This is that they got videos of this idiot uh, putting his uh, dick inside the young calves' mouths, including one which uh, one hungry calf uh, allegedly caught on to the fraud pretty quickly and headbutted the officer in the stomach because uh, no milk coming out of that weenie. So uh, the... Uh, Prosecutor said, I think any reasonable juror could infer that a man's penis in the mouth of a calf is torment. Uh, it's a crime against nature. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't make this shit up, people. Uh, if I could, I'd be in Hollywood writing screenplays, but then again, nobody would believe it because it is just too weird. Former police officer Robert Malia Jr. Uh, sticking his weenie in the mouths of young calves and apparently <clears throat> taking videos of, of, it, of it all. So uh, we'll, we'll, keep, uh, we'll keep you posted on that. Uh, it's, it's a little distasteful and pardon the pun, but we'll, uh, we'll just see what, uh, what progresses with Officer Molina and his uh, affinity for young cows. So there we have it tonight. Uh, another Another edition of the Opium Den. I want to thank everybody for coming inside tonight and especially thank uh, Tamara, Tamara. I keep getting her name wrong. I'm sorry, hon. Sorry. I'm visualizing you on the TV and it's, and it's, tonguing, it's tying my tongue up. But we appreciate uh, Tamara for coming in this evening and uh, we hope everybody uh, tunes in and checks out her, her website. So as we do every every do every uh, Thursday evening, I want to leave you with uh, with our motto, and that is: When good people obey bad law, bad law never changes. See you next week. <laughs>